Hello and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements Author in the Room conference call. My name is Dan and I'll be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, our participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star, then zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. David Shute. Dr. Shute is the Medical Director and Senior Consultant with Greenfield Health Systems in Portland. Greenfield is an innovative medical practice whose mission is delivery of superior clinical quality and patient service and spread of best practices through advocacy and teaching. Previously, Dr. Shute served as the Medical Director of Acumentra Health, the Oregon Quality Improvement Organization. There, Dr. Shute was responsible for oversight of all clinical activities and led the state's quality improvement activities. Dr. Shute, please go ahead. Greetings and welcome once again to Author in the Room. This is a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Shute and I will be your moderator for today's call. We are delighted that you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, that is what we've learned through research, uh, specifically published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being on December 20th. The article for that call will be Screening Amongst Elderly Males with Limited Life Expectancy, uh, authored by Dr. Lewis Walter. The article, um, please join us. Several organizations have made author in the room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage everyone to do so. Today our featured author uh, is Dr. Dariush Mozafarian. Uh, author of Fish Intake, Contaminants, and Human Health, uh, which was published in JAMA on October 18, 2006. Uh, Dr. Dariush has been active in teaching as a teaching assistant for nutritional epidemiology at Harvard School of Public Health. He is active at a guest, as a guest lecturer in cardiovascular epidemiology and principles of screening at Harvard School of Public Health. As a section leader for human physiology at Harvard University and as the course director of cardiovascular epidemiology at Tufts University School of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Dariush's clinical contributions have included patient care and teaching at Preventative Cardiology Clinic and Echocardiography Suite at the Boston VA Healthcare Center. Welcome, Dr. Dariush. Thank you. It's, uh, you can either call me Dariush or Dr. Mozafarian, but that's up to you. Thank you, Dr. Mozafarian. <laughs> as, as the moderator, it's uh, my job to help focus our discussion on the application uh, of Dr. Mozafarian's research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on this article. The purpose of author in the room is for you to hear directly from the author or authors about the research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Together, uh, Dr. Mozafarian and I will help you translate what's in the paper into the challenges applicable to your practice. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Mozafarian will spend about 10 minutes summarizing his findings. I will then take about five minutes to draw out some implications for the real-world practice setting and set the stage for us to take your questions and comments. Uh, 
I want to stress how important your participation is in these calls. This is a great forum in which to get clarification on anything in the article itself by speaking directly with the author and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps you might take in using this information. Your participation, not just in terms of questions, but also in terms of offering up your experience in this area, will be helpful. Uh, we have approximately 35 phone lines connected to the call today, generally with several individuals participating with each line. Remember, some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. On another note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites sites as a streaming audio or as podcasts. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are also available on these sites. Well, now let's get started. Let me again introduce Dr. Mozafarian, who will now provide an overview of his recent article. Dr. Mozafarian. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Shute. Uh, you know, the real goal and aim of our, our work was to uh, consider the risks and benefits of fish consumption. We, we felt there was uh, confusion and controversy about the relative, relevant, uh, relevant risks and relevant benefits. And in part, that was due to the fact that, you know, scientists who tended to study t toxic effects uh, were, were different than the scientists who tended to study uh, the benefits. And so single articles tended to focus on one or the other, and so there was a kind of uh, conflicting messages about whether fish was good or bad. And of course, the, the benefits were, uh, were thought to be potentially due to omega-3 fatty acids, and the major risks were thought to be potentially due to methylmercury and PCBs and dioxins. So that's what we focused on. And we didn't do a uh, systematic review of every possible health outcome related to fish. That would obviously uh, you know, have been several textbooks. What we did was focus on the, the major outcomes for which there was the most evidence and the most concern, and specific Specifically, in adults, we looked at uh, potential benefits for uh, cardiovascular risk um, and potential effects of methylmercury on cardiovascular risk and cognitive decline and potential risks of PCBs and dioxins for cancer. And in, uh, for children or for women of childbearing age who, who are having these children, we looked at potential benefits of fish oils for uh, neurologic development versus potential risks of methylmercury for neurologic development. And uh, our main goal was to look at the risk in humans, so we really focused on human studies uh, whenever possible and trying to get evidence from randomized trials and large prospective studies. And uh, when we put the evidence together, uh, we didn't just review it and sort of discuss it. We tried to come up with new quantitative estimates using meta-analysis techniques to try to best estimate the risks and benefits. And sort of just briefly summarize our major findings, um, uh, you know, there's some specific uh, uh, selective exceptions to the, the, the general findings, but the general findings were um, that the benefits of fish intake far outweighed the risks, um, both for adults and for women of childbearing age, except for maybe just a few species that women of childbearing age should avoid. And the major benefit for the general population we found was reduction in risk of, of dying from a heart attack or coronary heart disease death. Um, and when we put the evidence from prospective studies and randomized trials together, we found a 36% reduction uh, in the risk of dying from a heart attack. And translated into uh, total mortality, that would have, uh, depend on, on you know, how often uh, in any population some uh, the risk of a heart attack uh, uh, 
uh, is. But when we looked at randomized trials only, not prospective observational studies, but only randomized trials and did a meta-analysis of effects on total mortality, we found that uh, fish or fish oil reduced total mortality by 17%. So those are pretty remarkable benefits. Um, and to put it in perspective, um, you know, a meta-analysis of randomized trials of statin therapy shows that statins reduce total mortality by 15%. So um, while the confidence uh, in the estimate's not the same for fish intake versus statins, in other words, the confidence intervals are more broad, the magnitude of the of the potential benefit is very similar for fish intake versus statins, and so it's really a remarkable uh, a benefit. And then we looked uh, at uh, benefits of fish oil uh, for neurodevelopment, and we found that both in observational studies and, importantly, in randomized trials, there was evidence that fish oil uh, improved brain development uh, in babies when the mother uh, ate fish oil, specifically DHA, which is one of the fish oils. Um, the, the babies had uh, improved neurologic development as measured by uh, visual tests or cognitive tests that can be done in infants. So we found that there was also benefit of, uh, in, in, in that population. Looking at risks, um, the evidence for risks of mercury uh, in adults, uh, we actually found much less evidence than we expected, um, sort of conflicting studies, um, smaller studies uh, with, with potential limitations. And when we put the evidence together for risk of mercury and cardiovascular disease in adults, we didn't find any consistent association um, uh, between mercury and risk of cardiovascular disease in adults. We also did not find uh, any consistent association between methylmercury and cognitive function in adults. So at the levels that are consumed in, in seafood, um, we didn't really find any strong evidence for effects of mercury in adults. Now, there should be uh, further research on this, and, and that's, of course, warranted for, for most fields, but um, basically given uh, strong benefits for reducing risk of a heart attack and no clear effects for methylmercury uh, in adults, the, the, the story for adults was clear. Um, for, for cancer risk in adults of PCBs and dioxins, um, we found that you know, based on, on the best estimates that, that could be made, there was uh, a slight uh, excess cancer risk um, uh, for eating fish. And, and one example was a farmed salmon, which has some of the highest levels of PCBs and dioxins, and the estimated cancer risk was, was 24 excess deaths per 100,000 uh, individuals consuming farmed salmon for a lifetime. And, uh, you know, that, that uh, uh, estimate could be compared to the estimated benefit from the omega-3s, and we found 7,125 fewer coronary heart disease deaths uh, relative to 24 uh, uh, excess cancer deaths. So, you know, orders of magnitude difference for risks versus benefits. The other thing we found for PCBs and dioxins was that, contrary to sort of popular wisdom, the, the major sources of PCBs and dioxins were not fish, but the major sources in the U.S. diet of PCBs and dioxins are uh, meats, uh, dairy products, and vegetables. So less than 10% of PCBs and dioxins come from fish. So we concluded that basically neither the concerns for mercury nor concerns from PCBs and dioxins should you know, alter in individual recommendations or, or choices in adults regarding fish. And uh, I don't, I don't want to you know, take up too much time sort of describing the study because I'm sure this will come out in question, so I'll just briefly describe in, in, in infants. Um, you know, we also did not find uh, conclusive evidence for harm of mercury uh, uh, in infants at the levels that are consumed. And that, and that was actually a little bit surprising. It's, you know, 
it's in, in the, the consciousness that mercury is harmful for, for, for babies' brains, but the evidence wasn't actually as strong as, as we had expected. But, you know, given prudence, you know, just to be uh, on the safe side, since we are talking about neurologic development in children, um, and there is some evidence that maybe there are some subtle effects that are detected with specialized testing, we agreed with the uh, FDA EPA recommendations to have a very conservative uh, uh, possible level of exposure of mercury for women of childbearing age. But what that means is that really only four fish should be avoided, um, and m most other fish can be safely consumed by uh, women of childbearing age. So um, that was sort of our, uh, our major conclusion relating to that. I think I'll, I'll maybe end there. I think there will be probably several questions that will sort of clarify and elucidate and, and, and build on, on those sort of general, general uh, findings. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Mozafarian. Um, excellent work, and I think a very, very interesting work. And now I'd like to turn the discussion more to what the research suggests about the changes that we should make in clinical practice. That is, you know, what should clinicians and other healthcare professionals consider uh, to incorporate uh, from your article and the conclusions? So where do you suggest we begin if we want to turn your findings into better patient care? That's, that's you know, a, a great point. I think based on the strength of the evidence for benefits of fish intake, this should be recommended to all people at risk for dying from a heart attack. And since, you know, that's the number one cause of death, uh, uh, in the United States, and both both for women and men, virtually all patients at risk for heart disease should be counseled to consume fish once or twice per week. Uh, I, I didn't mention this before, but one important founding finding uh, from our study was that a lot of fish intake was not necessary. Um, one to get the benefit, uh, sort of intake of one or two servings of oilier fish uh, was enough to get most of the benefit. So I think it's critically important for doctors in their busy practice to give just you know, a bullet recommendation. Are you eating seafood? Are, are they oilier, darker meat fish? How much? Great. You know, it only takes a second. And patients do listen to their doctors. So I think that's, that's critical. And to, to, you know, uh, to also, patients will ask, well, what about mercury? What about PCBs, dioxins? And I think our, our study gives evidence that the benefits far outweigh the risks. And so women of childbearing age should avoid four species. Um, adults, there's really no species in particular they need to avoid on a regular basis. So uh, other than, than women avoiding those four species, you, you could give uh, people make, give people reassurance that fish is safe, uh, fish is healthy, and among all the things in our food supply on a calorie-for-calorie -calorie basis is probably the most important thing uh, one could eat for cardiovascular health. So I think that's the real implication is that, you know, given the magnitude of the benefit, this should be sort of standard of care to, to give recommendations to eat uh, seafood. Great. Now, one of the purposes for this call, of course, is to speed the, the translation of uh, good evidence-based research into practice. Um, and I think many of us have been frustrated by how long it actually takes for that to happen. Any advice you can give us, um, either as clinicians or as leaders in healthcare organizations, um, how we can make this happen both more quickly and more efficiently? Uh, you know, I, I think that's the, the trillion-dollar question. I mean, we've known for uh, some time that fish is likely healthy, but, of course, it hasn't worked its way into standard practice. And there's some there's – there's resistance somehow to, to – basic sort of fundamental uh, things like physical, recommending physical activity, recommending uh, diet, good diets um, in, in clinical practice. And I, I don't think it's resistance because physicians don't care. They certainly care, but I think that they, they're not sure 
to what extent their recommendations uh, will help. They're not sure if they need to, you know, change the whole diet or just recommend a few things. Um, and, you know, also, frankly, there's no drug companies who are advertising and pushing, uh, you know, basic uh, fundamental lifestyle changes. So it, it doesn't sort of, you know, there's there's not really a financial incentive for companies to, to push this. And so uh, it just doesn't, in, it just hasn't entered the consciousness of, of, of our, our society the way it should. But I think that, you know, with evidence that simple recommendations that can be easily followed, you know, you don't need to change necessarily your whole diet, just add a couple of good things to your diet and we can maybe talk more about some of the other things that would be important. I think that, you know, I think there's a there's a turning point that's happening, and I think the obesity epidemic is is part of the reason for that turning point. People are starting to get it that that you know simple things, what you eat and what you do for activity, make a huge difference. And so I think we're we're arriving at that point uh, slowly. Great, that's wonderful. And you know, again, I, I find these results to be very impressive. You know, as you said, almost remarkable in that uh, consuming high oil, oil fishes two to three times a week may bring benefits on par with statins. And you know, I would think that would certainly get the question or get the attention of practitioners. Um, I think one of the challenges very often in terms of doing patient education is the time that we have in the exam room and the competition for all the different things that we want to communicate during that time. Um, and so one, one solution I've seen quite often is good patient educational materials that makes it easier for for providers to do that and more efficient. Are there any educational materials currently that exist that you would recommend we consider using? Um, well, that's a great question. I should I should say that the the benefits of fish intake are similar to the benefits for statins for death from heart disease. Um, statins also uh, uh, reduce the risk of non-fatal uh, MI, and fish probably doesn't have strong effects on non-fatal MI. So that there is, uh, we don't want to overstate the case. But for dying from a heart attack, which in, in many cases what we're worried about, fish probably is on par with with statins. Um, in, in terms of your question, I think that uh, you know the, the Institute of Medicine came out with a report uh, roughly at the same time ours did, and their ultimate recommendations were very similar to ours. And they actually uh, bemoaned the fact that there were not easily accessible sort of uh, edu education tools, and they recommended that such tools be made. And they've, they've put out a couple of proposals, and so hopefully in the next few months there will be things that can be downloaded on the Internet or looked up on the Internet and printed, sort of simple things about, uh, about what, you know, what fish to eat and how, how much to eat. Great. Thank you. All right. Well, now we're going to turn to questions from our callers. Uh, your questions can include how to use this information, how to make improvements in practice, and please feel free to share examples of what you may have already done or tried and the new knowledge that you've gained through that or what you're planning to do in the future. Uh, so, Dan, uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, open it up for questions. Thank you. At this time, we will conduct a question and answer session. If you have a question, press zero then the one key on your touchtone phone. This will place you into a queue. One by one, the lines will be open, so you may each ask your question. So again, that's zero one on your touchtone phone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, press zero then the two key. There will be one moment for questions. Okay, our first question comes from Carol Bartolotta with Kaiser Permanente. Please go ahead. Hi. Um, thank you so much. This has been very um, helpful. 
I, I had a couple of questions. I mean, I um, work with uh, population care management at Kaiser Permanente, and we're always trying to get our members to improve their diet, et cetera. Um, however, I had some concerns, and I just I know this isn't one of the things that you had said we could um, make a comment or ask a question about, um, but I know that there's not a lot of research on mercury, PCBs, dioxins, and potentially there could be other problems other than cognitive or CHD-related uh, issues. Um, so I know, and I also know in the back of your article you say um, choosing fish that's lower in mercury or by consuming a variety of seafood would help. But um, I'm just, I feel still some concern uh, about just recommending a lot of foods without, for the general population, without making some of these stipulations about mercury, PCBs. And you do mention that in your, um, where you talk about optimal intakes in your article. And I just wondered if you would comment on that, just because there's not a lot of research. Yes, um, you know, what the research that's there doesn't, you know, that the benefits outweigh the risks, but perhaps if there was more research, um, there would be more concern. And therefore, should we still have uh, prudent guidelines and say, like, for instance, instead of choosing, like, choosing canned salmon, which is typically wild, so then you're going to get less mercury, less PCBs, less dioxin. So, no, I think that's a, a great question uh, because I think everybody sort of... Hello? Hello? But, but I, think that the, I think that the logic of that idea is not correct if you actually look at the numbers. And it all you know, comes down to really comparing the numbers and seeing what we're talking about. So you know, it's true that there, there's not conclusive research on risks of mercury and PCBs. That, that doesn't mean there's not research. There, there have been studies. And those studies have shown for mercury uh, no conclusive evidence of, of higher cardiovascular risk. And interestingly, the two studies that showed higher risk with mercury intake overall fish intake was still beneficial. So really, it suggests that maybe mercury, if anything, modestly reduces uh, the benefits of fish intake, but, but doesn't, you know, cause the fish to be actually harmful. And, and you know, that's really important. That the absence of, of a clear harm doesn't mean that there's clearly harm and we just didn't see it. I mean, there have been studies, and the studies have been mostly neutral. And the same goes for uh, uh, mercury and other outcomes like cognitive development. There have been many studies, and there's no clinical effects of mercury whatsoever at the levels that are consumed, uh, but at, at there may be these very subtle subclinical effects, but even that's, that's not well established. So I think that when you look at those you know, very uncertain risks, very low-level risks compared to, you know, relatively uh, very well-established benefits, I think that that's just, it's not a logical argument to worry and worry and worry about, you know, maybe there's this unknown risk that we haven't discovered. The, the other point I would make is, you know, I've only talked about the benefits of fish intake for, for dying from a heart attack, and there's, you know, considerable and growing evidence that fish intake affects many other clinical outcomes, including dementia, stroke, cognitive decline, maybe atrial fibrillation, maybe congestive heart failure, really important clinical outcomes. And, and the magnitude of those, uh, the magnitude of importance of those outcomes is so much more than subtle, you know, possible effects on cardiovascular disease or, or cognitive disease. So, so I think that, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't be a culture just so worried about possible unknown risks that we don't do what's, what's obvious in front of us. Um, and, and I also think that uh, you know, for PCBs and dioxins in particular, the risk is greatly uh, exaggerated because meats, dairy products, and vegetables are the major sources of PCBs and dioxins in, 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 
the environment. So that's what we're eating. So you know, why aren't there people uh, talking about reducing dairy product intake or re- reducing vegetable uh, intake because of uh, uh, PCBs and toxins and those things? We're not, and, and we shouldn't be because the levels are very low. Well, great. Well, thank you for that question. Thank you very much. Uh, Dan? All right, our next question comes from Norman with Healthcare for 21st Century. Please go ahead. Yeah, hi. Is basic effect from fish due to the uh, omega-3 oils? And if so, wouldn't using omega-3 oils that's been scrubbed of all the toxins be a better option? Uh, it could be guided the patient uh, more easily. They don't have to change whatever diet they have to just you know use fish if they don't like fish. And could they get the same benefits out of using omega-3 oils? That's, you know, also a very good question. You know, we don't know the answer for certain, but, um, you know, based on the sum of the evidence, I think most of the benefit of fish intake is probably due to the omega-3s. There, there may be other benefits of fish intake due to other things in fish that aren't in the oil, for example, a selenium or other vitamins in fish. So some of the benefit may not be the fish oil, but I think most of it probably is. Um, most studies that have looked at fish or fish oil and looked at various risk factors sort of see relatively similar effects. But I think that, um, you know, the, the, the idea that taking a pill is easier than, than changing your diet, I think that's, you know, that's a question of philosophy. I actually disagree with that philosophy. I think just telling somebody to add a couple things to their meals every day is much easier than taking a pill. Now, prescribing a pill is easier than, than maybe giving advice to eat fish and take from the doctor's perspective. But, you know, we, we know that there's noncompliance with pills. Um, not everybody likes to take pills. Some people really don't like it. And especially for primary prevention in generally healthy people, a lot of people don't want to take a pill every day. So um, I think that, that an omega-3 capsule is a, a reasonable second choice if somebody doesn't want to eat fish or doesn't like it. I think it's a great choice. But for me, from a public health perspective, it wouldn't be my, my, my first option, but I think it's a very good, reasonable second alternative. Well, thank you. And Dr. Mozafarian, another question that I think comes off of Norman's questions is, do the omega-3 capsules, are they actually free of the potential toxins such as PCBs and mercury? Yeah, so, you know, they have low levels of, they, they have almost no mercury in them because their fish oil capsules are generally made from very small fish that have, have no mercury. They have very low levels of, of mercury. They do have PCBs and dioxins in them because they're from fish, and fish like meats, dairy products, vegetables have some low levels of PCBs and dioxins in them. But, uh, you know, since you're only typically eating a gram or, or two grams a day, the amount you get is, is, is very low. Great. Thank you. Uh, next question, please. Okay, our next question comes from Carol with St. Vincent, Vincent Hospital. Great. Go ahead, Carol. Hello. Could you tell us the four fish that need to be avoided if you're of childbearing age? Yeah, that, that, that's a, a good question. The four fish that need to be avoided uh, if uh, women are of childbearing age or nursing um, are king mackerel, uh, a shark, swordfish, and uh, golden bass or tilefish uh, from the Gulf of Mexico. And so, um, you know, that, that's not the easiest list to remember. I mean, shark and swordfish is, are the kind of the more common ones. So remember shark and swordfish. And then king mackerel and golden bass or tilefish. Those are fish that have generally greater than 50 micrograms of mercury per serving, and that's 
the very conservative dose that the FDA has set that, that women of childbearing age should avoid. So, you know, if one serving will put you over that, that's sort of what's recommended to avoid. But I, I should point out that, you know, that reference dose, you know, mercury is not a teratogen. Mercury doesn't cause birth defects. It's not that if you ate the fish once, then you're going to have this dramatic effect on the kid. We're, we're talking about subtle effects sort of over you know, several months of intake that are seen maybe with specialized testing and in children. And so, uh, you know, I think if someone were to eat one fish once, they shouldn't go and worry that, oh, my God, I ate the wrong fish. There's going to be this incredible effect. We're really talking about very subtle effects over months uh, of intake. I, go, go ahead. I have one more question. Just This is different, but... Um, you had mentioned before about the capsules being lower, having a lower level of mercury in PCBs. Um, what about the, the fish oil liquid that you can buy in the, the little packets, and it's just a liquid supplement? Uh, it, sh it should be the same. You know, generally fish oil capsules are made from, you know, very small fish from the deep ocean that are inexpensive and aren't really usable for, you know, sales in, in restaurants or anything like that. And so almost no mercury. And there are PCBs and dioxins in them at low levels like like their low levels in, in all fish, but, you know, you're not going to get very much from, from eating them. Okay, Great. thank you. Thank you. And Dr. Mozafari and Carol ask you about the four species that you recommend avoiding. Perhaps another good list to just review for the callers is what are the species that you recommend that um, uh, patients eat if, if, if they have the choice? Well, I think, again, for the general population, there's no single species that should be avoided. And uh, the first caller mentioned an important point that I didn't get to address was, you know, if you really just want to be safe and you're really worried, just eat a variety of seafood. And if you just eat sort of different things each week, different different things over the course of a year, then, you're, you know, you're, you're never going to get something that's that's consistently be eating something that might be higher in mercury. But, but since we think the benefits are mostly related to omega-3s, then, you know, the fish that are the highest in the omega-3s probably would have the most benefit. And it's sort of dark meat or oilier fish as opposed to the white or flaky kind of fish. And so the dark meat fish that are higher in omega-3s are farm salmon and wild salmon, uh, herring, uh, mackerel, anchovies, sardines are all sort of the highest. And then the medium levels, which are still fairly high, are fish like trout, uh, bass, um, uh, uh, snapper, most shellfish actually. And then fish that are lower in the omega-3s are the fish that we just sort of think of as the white flaky fish like cod or catfish or mahi-mahi or all kind of the, 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 the lower levels. And uh, uh, you know, but those fish still have omega-3, so eating those is still better than not eating them at all if you want to get some omega-3s, but you're going to have to eat many more servings to get the same amount of fish oil. Great. All right, next question, please. All right, our next question comes from Nick with Kaiser Permanente. Hi. Uh, I really liked your paper, first of all. Um, and I actually have uh, more of a sort of researchy question about your meta-analysis. Um, so I'm, I'm working on uh, an evidence-based clinical practice guideline for cholesterol management, and we um, kind of sort of like really sort of pulled apart uh, the meta-analysis in terms of looking at the individual studies that were included. And we noticed that um, a lot of the populations that were sampled were, well, they were heterogeneous, like they were some, some were at high risk, some were at very minimal risk, there were post-MI patients. and um, 
we we noticed that um, a lot of the results were driven by the the GISI trial from Italy, which was um, all post MI patients. And I guess uh, I'm curious um, uh, whether you think the evidence is kind of strong enough to recommend fish consumptions for every for any subgroup of patients, given that. Um, the individual studies in particular groups weren't um, themselves statistically significant? Well, you know, some of them, of course, were, like GISI being a mm -hmm. good example. I think, uh, you know, GISI is, uh, was a study in, among Italians who had all had a recent MI, sort of on average about a month, and that was a randomized clinical trial, and, you know, mortality was reduced uh, by about uh, uh, 15 to 20%. And mm -hmm. so um, total mortality, not, not heart disease mortality, heart disease mortality was reduced even more. So I think for patients with recent myocardial infarction, you know, the GISI results provide very strong results for that subgroup. Um, the meta-analysis, as you said, sort of does combine different, different subgroups. And so, um, you know, I don't think that we could make a definitive statement on the magnitude of the effect for fish oil, for mortality in all different subgroups. But I think that the meta-analysis of, of total mortality, what I think that's most important for is that's randomized clinical trials. And so if in randomized clinical trials of heterogeneous populations, you see an a clear effect, significant effect on total mortality, we know fish is doing something. And then I think we can look at observational studies since there have been many more well-done prospective observational studies and, and large randomized trials just to do the expense of doing large randomized trials. I think we can look then at the prospective observational studies to look at specific populations by age, by gender, by other risk factors, by metabolic syndrome, diabetes, etc., to see then, you know, in those studies, how, how does fish intake look? And if it looks consistent in all those populations that are observational and we have a meta-analysis from a randomized trials con confirming benefit, I think we get a sort of a, a good cohesive picture. And um, in all the subgroups that have been examined in observational studies, you know, fish intake reduces the risk of death from heart, from heart disease. The exception is among Japanese because uh, even the Japanese who eat the least fish are eating so much fish that the whole population is at lower risk. And so among Japanese, when you look, you know, at fish intake, you don't see an effect on, on heart disease mortality because they're all at lower risk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. All right, next question, please. All right, uh, again, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, simply press zero one on your touchtone phone. And our next question comes from David with Pinellas County Health. Please go ahead. David, your line is now open. He's out fishing. <laughs> Okay, that's all the questions we have at this time. Uh, but again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, simply press zero one on your touchtone phone. Yeah, great. Well, I have a question, Dr. Mozafarian. Uh, I mean, you you mentioned that um, we should be recommending fish intake to all of our patients, um, and are, are you referring just to patients who are, have identified risk factors for cardiovascular disease, or do you think we should be recommending fish intake more broadly? Um, well, you know th that. On a public health perspective, you know, that sort of gets into issues of, of you know, if you were managing the, the entire public health system of the U.S., then that gets into questions of availability and supply and, and you know, if there's enough fish for everyone in the U.S. to eat fish twice a day, which there's probably not. Um, and so 
if you put on your public health hat, you might want to target the fish intake to, uh, you know, the specific populations at higher risk for dying from a heart attack. But, you know, for an individual patient um, that's coming into your office, of course, our job as physicians is to care for that patient. And, um, you know, we, we prescribe medicines or we, we do interventions based on what that patient needs, not based on, you know, what we think the, the overall cost effectiveness to society is necessarily. Um, and so for the individual patient, I, I think it's important for anybody that's really at risk. And, uh, you know, that's, that's most people, um, you know, definitely, uh, you know, women who are approaching or, or, or past menopause and, and men over 40 certainly are at risk for dying from a heart attack. As, as you know, the first manifestation of heart disease in many patients is a heart attack, and it's estimated that about half of all first heart attacks are fatal. And so, you know, it's the number one cause of death, and, and if we can lower that by roughly a third, you know, it has enormous public health benefit. Now, if we get to the point where a, a large segment of the population is eating two fish a day, uh, two fish ser- or seafood servings a day, and we start to have, you know, environmental uh, uh, we start to really have problems with the fish supply in the U.S., then we'll need to think about other things. But we're nowhere close to that. I mean, the fish intake in the U.S. is, is incredibly low, much lower than in many European or Mediterranean countries. And and I think long term, I think what we're going to have to do, if we actually start to get uh, omega-3s into the food supply, long term, I think we're going to come up with uh, plant-based or uh, other animal-based sources of omega-3s through, uh, you know, genetic engineering or other modifications. And while I know that there are groups that are against that sort of engineering, I think if we can make a plant that makes uh, a vegetable that makes uh, seafood omega-3s, you know, I think that that would be a good thing. Um, And ultimately, I think we'll have supply from, from something like that. Great. I mean, yeah, you touched a very interesting issue on this come out uh, about the same time your article was published about uh, at least one projection about the impending collapse of fish stocks worldwide. Uh, how do you reconcile the recommendations in your article uh, against that at least one prediction that we may have serious problems with fish supply in the future? Well, again, it, you know, I think that very much depends on what, what hat you put on. And if, if you're, uh, you know, we have valid and serious uh, uh, environmental concerns about almost every aspect of our environment. It seems we're sort of overrunning our planet. You know, there's issues relating to global warming, warming. Uh, there's depletion of the rainforest, there's uh, deforestation of, of the United States itself, um, there's issues related to how, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, d- dairy products and uh, beef and cattle are, are raised in terms of environmental sustainability, um, energy concerns, oil concerns. So I think that there are huge environmental concerns in our country, and you know I'm certainly for uh, protecting our environment. So I think that given how important omega-3s are for human health, you know, calorie for calorie, they're the most important thing for human health. You know, we need to develop sustainable, uh, financially viable sources of omega-3s. But I don't, I don't think that discussion, which is a very important one, should be used to confuse people that fish is not healthy. And I think that there are, are some groups that, that, you know, due to valid environmental concerns, try to make people worry about PCBs or, or, or other things to get them to not eat fish. And I think that, that that's just, that's, you know, a little bit dishonest. So we should just separate them out. We should say, you know, fish is healthy. Uh, it's a healthy food. But, you know, let's work on you know, getting getting how we make or grow fish sustainable. 
Great, thank you. Dan, are there any other questions in the queue? Yes, we did have some more come in. Our, our first one comes from Carol with Kaiser Permanente. Please go ahead. Well, just one comment and then a question. I think that science article that was published on, on um, salmon, farm salmon, where I think one of the stats was if it's salmon from, farm salmon from Scotland, it's so toxic you should only eat it once a year. I mean, that like had such a, I know it had an effect on the way that I looked at salmon and that kind of thing. So that's probably why there's, I don't know, at least on my end and just different people I've talked to, some resistance. And I did read um, that there were consumer groups and other groups that were concerned about that. So I don't know. That's why I often tell people, you know, just have, um, you know, canned salmon because that's usually wild or choose, if you can, you know, choose wild salmon. Right. Um, well, well, well the, 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 you bring up a very important point. I think that article and the attention that it received did... Uh, uh, confuse people, and and the the reason is is that the authors used as a um, as a cut point for what was acceptable risk the traditional cut point of a risk factor in the environment. So you know if you have contaminated water, or if you have contaminated air, or if you have you know contaminated fruit, you know at what level does the level of risk in this case cancer risk exceed a threshold that's safe for the population and. You know the EPA has a low threshold of uh, of risk. If you know you have more than, uh, depends on on uh, they have various thresholds, but usually one in ten thousand or one in a hundred thousand deaths um, due to a, a, a toxin, then it's deemed too high, and that's and that's mm -hmm. good for for things like air or water or vegetables or things like that. And that's where they came up with those those conclusions. But what's missing from that assessment was well, but what happens if you eat the fish for all of risk, not just cancer risk, because we're not talking about water. We're not talking about, uh, you know, a piece of bread or, or a vegetable, which one serving doesn't have a lot of effect on risk. We're talking about something which, in addition to the cancer risk, has tremendous benefits. So, um, you know, it would be better, uh, you know, on a, on a, in a point, it would be 0.1% better to eat fish that didn't have PCBs and dioxins, but not eating it is more dangerous than eating it. And so, that, that, and that was missed in that science article. And that, that same group published subsequently in a much uh, less uh, 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 read journal. Um, well, I, I, should, I don't mean that in a bad way, I just in a, in a pejorative way. I just mean it didn't receive the same media attention. They actually published a quantitative estimate of risks and benefits. And we actually uh, used and referenced their that same group's quantitative estimate of risks and benefits in our article. Our estimate was uh, uh, fairly similar, but it's their estimate where they, pr where they estimate 24 ex excess cancer deaths from farm salmon and 7,125 uh, fewer coronary heart disease deaths. So, um, you know, I don't think we can use the EPA's um, cut point for risk for something that has so much benefit um, on top of it. And, and there really isn't anything else in the food supply that has that kind of benefit. So um, you know, I think the EPA should actually consider um, you know, what, what that means for, for fish intake. Where was I, I, don't that that, I don't know if that makes sense. Where was the, their quantitative estimate? Yes. Uh, you know, I have the manuscript in front of me. I'll have to look it up. Um, let me see. And, and Carol, oh, well, while I'm looking that up, go, go ahead if you have other comments. Yeah, I just, did you have a, a question oh, yeah. as well, my, Carol? My question was, have there you figured out, based on the fact that there is no drug company, there is no money, there is no, 
you know, drug recs coming in and saying, hey, recommend salmon. Um, do you have any recommendations for how to get providers, physicians, other healthcare providers to make this recommendation for fish? Sure. So, so the article, uh, the first author is Foran, F-O-R-A-N, and it's in uh, Journal of Nutrition 2005. And they discuss the risks in the, in the results section, and they discuss their estimate of benefits in, in, the, discuss, in the discussion section. And their estimate, as I said, was 7,125 fewer deaths. When we did our estimate, it was about 8,600. But you know, given that it's 7,000, 8,000 versus 24, we used their lower estimate in our article. But our, our actual estimate was, was for, for more benefit. And that was um, 24 per 10,000? Per hundred per hundred thousand per hundred, okay. and that's over a lifetime. And the other point is that that risk assumes needing to eat one gram a day of EPA and DHA. And I think our analysis suggests that you can eat probably a quarter of that and get most of the benefits, which would lower the the risk by one quarter um, and not change the benefits very much. So uh, uh, I think your question about, um, you know, how do we get physicians to do this, I think, I, I mean, I may be optimistic or idealistic, but I think physicians want to give this advice, but they're concerned that it seems that every week something changes and one week fish is good for you and one week fish is bad for you and one, one, one year it was margarine and now it's back to butter. And so I think they're sort of think that, well, you know, nothing really uh, uh we don't know anything about nutrition, but that's that's not the case if you you know have time to to go through and read the science. You know what's happened is our methods have improved, just like our methods of for genetics have improved, or our methods for cell biology have improved, our methods for nutritional science have improved, and so you know we know much better now uh, uh, sort of the major things that are important for cardiovascular disease. And when I speak to physicians and show them the evidence, you know, which I can't do over the phone as well, but, you know, if I can have slides and sort of discuss the evidence, they're convinced. So I think that just letting physicians know that there's very good evidence that, that you know, seafood intake, especially oilier fish, is, is good for health, I think just giving them that sim sim simple n knowledge, I think, uh, I hope, in, in an optimistic way, will be enough to get them to recommend that to their patients. Well, that's such a great point because of the Institute of Medicine article that came out that said, well, it may decrease risk, and it wasn't as definitive as yours. Yeah, right. and I think, and, and I think, you know, we, uh, 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 I think that the difference, you know, ultimately their recommendations were identical to ours, which is very interesting because they were completely separate reports. But, but their conclusions about the strength of the benefit were not as strong, and I believe that's because, you know, they didn't perform. It wasn't their task to perform any new synthesis or new meta-analysis of the data. So, if you just sort of look at all the studies and summarize them and look at the evidence, you know, there is some conflicting evidence. But I think what you know, in the end, the meta-analysis is a, a quantitative summary uh, of the data and the best current estimate we have. And so, you know, our meta-analyses for mortality and, and coronary heart disease death, um, I think, led us to stronger conclusions. If we hadn't done that, you know, and just had sort of read the articles and looked at them and summarized them carefully like the IOM did, maybe we would have had the same uh, uh, qualified statement about benefit. But ultimately, their recommendations were uh, very similar, uh, if not identical, to ours in terms of actual fish intake.
Yeah, and Carol, I, I think that's a, g a great question. Um, certainly, I think education is a key piece of that. I think the strength of the message is important, and obviously the consistency of the message. But I would have a, a, an additional answer to that is really I think this needs to be not just um, something we're asking physicians to do in the exam room, but I think like many things in healthcare quality, the systems that through which we deliver quality need to be designed to support it. So, for example, simply having high-quality, patient-level, understandable educational materials available either in the room or online for patients makes it easier to do that. Um, I think it's probably appropriate that a lot of nutritional education happens not necessarily from physicians but from other members of the healthcare team who may have more time and, frankly, may have more expertise in this area. And I think it's clearly critical that physicians um, reinforce the message, but perhaps we can think a little bit about how the healthcare system can support this educational effort. David, I just want to say I agree with everything you said, but I want to emphasize the importance of the physician emphasizing the message because, you know, the patient comes into the office and you do assess and talk about their blood pressure and you do assess and talk about their lipids if they're at cardiovascular risk. Um, and that is something that physicians do. They have a flow sheet when they, they sort of record the blood pressure and follow them or a flow sheet and record the cholesterol. That should be done for important lifestyle factors and it should be done by the physician because patients, you know, research has, has consistently shown that patients listen most closely to their doctors. And, you know, in some ways, um, uh, you know, the, the, the focus on H cholesterol, uh, high blood pressure, and, and diabetes has been great in many ways, of course, but it's also been, been sort of uh, uh, a little bit short-sighted because the real risk factors are physical activity and poor dietary habits that then result in the risk factors. So I, I think there does need to be a shift in, in, in care so that we're, in addition to assessing the risk factors, we're assessing the real risk factors for the risk factors, and physicians are doing that. But that's, you know, as a cardiologist, I'm busy when I see a patient, but I, I, I still always talk about diet and I always talk about physical activity, even if only briefly. Right. What a great comment, and I certainly agree that shifting the focus uh, way upstream to those lifestyle changes is what we all need to be doing. I, I think we have time for one more question before we end the call. Dan, do we have one more? Yes. Our question comes from Joel with Kaiser Permanente. Please go ahead. Um, I, I apologize if this question is somewhat redundant, but I guess I'm kind of drawing from some of the previous questions. Um, I, I'm also working um, with uh, developing these uh, evidence-based um, medicine recommendations for, for uh, fish uh, in dietary fish intake, but also um, we're now looking at the uh, fish oil supplements more closely. And um, while we already have recommendations in place for for uh, you know high oily, high oily fish intake, and we try to emphasize those as much as possible, we're uh, we're still kind of at a, at a, a crossroads and, and not sure you know whether we should make strong, whether the, and whether the evidence is strong enough that we should. Um, recommend fish oil supplementation, you know, particularly those that are the, the highly concentrated fish oil supplements. Um, I, I guess, you know, you know, based on, you know, some of the evidence, like primarily the JIZZY trial, um, we, we, felt, we felt like, well, we can make a recommendation, an optional recommendation, I should say, for, for, um, for uh, fish oil supplementation in, in post-MI patients, but we were struggling with whether or not that whether or not we could apply that same recommendation to to everyone, um, you know, with existing cardiovascular disease, um, and, 
and we're, we're sort of at a loss there. And, and not only that, I mean, when we looked at the evidence, as I'm sure you, you know, as you've done with your trial, we were looking at the, the Hooper analysis, which you, I think, referenced. And, um, you know, obviously they didn't find a statistically significant effect. Um, but then you so added up, three you, trials. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so you brought up a lot of, I, I'm sorry, did you, did you no, have more? No, go ahead, go ahead. Okay. I, yeah, I, you, I threw out a lot there, so. Okay, you, yeah, you brought, brought up a lot of different important things. And so um, first, I think, the, for the GISI trial, um, I agree with you that that's the, the strongest evidence for fish oil. Um, I, I don't agree with making it optional. I think that, you know, the only reason that it's not um, approved um, uh, as a class one indication in the U.S. is because the GISI trial was not placebo controlled. They just used, uh, you know, a control that didn't receive anything. So since it's not placebo controlled, people said, well, there could be bias or, there, you know, there could be something else. But mortality was reduced about 15% in that study. Um, cardiovascular death, cardiac death was reduced about 30%, and sudden death was reduced by about 50%. You know, I know of no placebo effect from, uh, well, they, they didn't even get a placebo, but I know of no, if the fish oil didn't work, um, if it wasn't actually the fish oil doing that, I know of no placebo effect that can reduce total mortality by 15%. I mean, it's, it's incredible. As I said, it's on par with statins. And so I think that the GISI trial should make uh, treatment of fish oil, if people aren't eating fish, uh, uh, an absolute recommendation for people with recent MI. Um, for fish oil in, you know, many people would not agree with me, but that's my, my assessment. My, in, in the primary prevention, I, I agree with you. You know, if you want to use pure evidence-based medicine, um, there's not pure evidence-based medicine that fish oil tablets reduce coronary death mortality in primary prevention. The, the JELUS trial, which was published, excuse me, presented but not yet published among Japanese, showed that uh, fish oil given in primary prevention reduces non-fatal events. Um, but, you know, that hasn't been published yet, so I don't think we can make that recommendation. So I think that if you purely want to make evidence-based recommendations, we can't yet recommend fish oil for primary prevention. I think we can recommend fish based on the evidence, but we can't yet recommend fish oil. But that's if you really want it to be a strict evidence-based sort of person. I think if we think it's the omega-3s, they worked for MI, the fish works for primary prevention, you know, why wouldn't the fish oil work? I mean, that's, that's my feeling. So from a practical perspective, um, you know, I, I think it's okay. But pure, pure, on pure evidence base, it's not okay. And then your last comment was about the Hooper analysis. So the Hooper analysis, they, they, they analyzed cancer and showed no effect, which, which makes sense. They analyzed total cardiovascular events, so not just fatal cardiovascular events, and didn't see a strong effect. And that makes sense because fish intake pretty much most strongly affects death from heart disease. And they actually mentioned, not in the BMJ publication, but in the initial Cooper analysis, they mentioned that we're not going to really look at coronary heart disease death because other meta-analyses have already looked at this. They looked at total cardiovascular events. Um, and then for total mortality, as you said, they found a non-significant 14% reduction when we added three double-blind randomized controlled trials that have been published since then, that became statistically significant. So I think that, you know, it, they found an effect that was sort of a trend, and then when you added more data, it became statistically significant. So I think the Hooper analysis overall is not inconsistent with their findings. They just uh, you know, didn't have as much data for total mortality and didn't look at coronary heart disease mortality. I, I guess, um, yeah, along those lines, I think some of the physicians, when, when we looked at the, the, the additional studies that were added, it, it appeared they were all in ICD patients. So right. we weren't okay. sure, you know, what, if that really, you know, Push this over the the, the uh, threshold, so to speak. 
on that. I, I wasn't sure. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not really clear on if that if that really should affect it or not. Right. Well, you know, I would love to see, and I'm all for, and and I may write a grant soon for, you know, six or seven large randomized placebo-controlled double-blind trials of fish oil, the way we've done for statins. You know, I think it's in, in, incredibly important. They need to be funded. We need to do those studies, and so we don't have those studies. Yeah. So, um, you know, if you if you want to. Uh, uh, if, if, you, if we need to have the same um, level of evidence as, for example, for medications, you know, that's what we, we would want. Um, you know, dietary factors, as opposed to fish oil, is not a medication. You know, you don't need to prescribe it. It doesn't cost money to society. Um, it doesn't have the side effects, uh, that, the severe side effects that some drugs can have, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So I don't think, in, in my mind, we need that level of evidence necessarily to make recommendations. If, 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 and I, I guess I would sum it up with a pretty simple statement. If based on the evidence, I'm not talking about fish oil, I'm talking about fish. If based on the evidence we can't strongly recommend fish, then we can't recommend anything in the diet because this is stronger evidence than we have for anything, uh, including whole grains, fruits and vegetables, low saturated fat, um, you know, all the things that we think of as healthy and we consistently recommend to patients, this evidence is stronger. It's not perfect, you're right, um, but it's stronger. So, uh, you know, if we really wanted to be strict, then we wouldn't recommend anything in the diet because we say we don't have the large, double-blind, multiple uh, randomized trials to, to confirm the effect in all populations. But but I'm all for doing those trials, and I hope that the NIH and, and uh uh, maybe industry and, and private sponsors also think they're important, and we get those trials done. Great. And that's a great closing comment. I want to thank you for your question. Uh, that's all the time we have for questions right now. It has been a wonderful discussion of the issues brought up by your article. Um, and uh, Dr. Mozafarian, we have just one minute left for any closing thoughts or comments you may have. Yeah, I, I just wanted to end. Well, first, thank you very much. I, I, I think the questions were great. I wish we had more time to discuss them in more detail. And, of course, anyone can feel free to email me. That's uh, on the JAM article, my email. I think my, the take-home messages are that for the general population, the health benefits of fish intake outweigh the risks. The same is true for women of childbearing age, with the exception of four species they should avoid. And, and also, we didn't mention this, but white tuna or albacore tuna, they should just have one serving per week. And I think, you know, thirdly, given the magnitude of the benefits, given that we should should recommend dietary uh, 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 dietary things to our patients. You know, physicians should give regular, brief, succinct dietary advice to their patients, and you know it can be done quickly. And it should really just include a few evidence-based recommendations, such as eating uh, seafood one or two servings per week. Well, great. I'd like to, again, thank you, Dr. Mozafarian, for your participation in the call and for providing such um, great answers to questions and an enlightening discussion. I want to thank the callers and the participants. This, this event is really about having a chance to chat with the author, to ask the questions that are relevant in our practice world today, and so thank you, callers, for your contribution. As a reminder, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month from at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Our next discussion will take place on December 20th. Our featured guest is Dr. Walter, who will be discussing screening among elderly males with a limited life expectancy. Sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, Author in the Room is an interactive call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical care. Thanks again to all of you for being part of the Author in the Room, and have a good day.